As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a plethora of free ebooks. But now for today's show. I'm joined by the wonderful John Swinton, Professor in Practical Theology and Pastoral Care at Aberdeen University. John spent 16 years as a psychiatric nurse before becoming an ordained minister in the Church of Scotland. John, thank you so much for joining us today. We, we've spoken a little bit about kind of your life as a, um, as a psychiatric nurse and then going into chaplaincy and becoming an academic theologian. And we spoke a little bit kind of generally about spiritual care and suffering and things mm-hmm. like that. But what I'd love to do is, is to talk specifically about an area which is obviously a huge area of expertise for you. Um, but, but talking about how to kind of support people with mental health struggles and mental health oh, okay. difficulties... And, I, you know, I don't know whether this is just kind of anecdotally and what I've seen, and I do a lot of work with young people, so I don't know whether it's just heightened in that area. But what I've seen is that sort of post-COVID, we, we seem to be in this kind of mental health crisis almost. Um, I just wonder whether you would have something to say about why that might be, and I guess crucially, what we can do to begin to alleviate some of that suffering when it comes to mental health difficulties. It's a difficult time for not just young people, for all of us in that sense. Because one of the one of the uh, one of the things that's clear is that, for example, anxiety levels across the world are significantly raised just now. And when you think about it historically, it's not surprising. Think about the past thirty years. So you have the financial crisis of two thousand eight, two thousand whenever it was, two thousand eight. Yeah. Where we suddenly realised, when we suddenly realised that money didn't exist, right? The thing yeah. that we were all saving up for turns out there's nothing to save. Uh, so you're really vulnerable. And then you have the the pandemic that indicates that actually uh, tiny little microbes can have a devastating effect across the globe, and that you are mortal. You may have not have thought that before, but you are thoroughly mortal. Then you have war in Ukraine and then the threat of nuclear war. All these things accumulate to make people really, really anxious. Now, bearing in mind that for many people, there is no story, coherent story, that holds all that together. So 
for Christians or for, actually for, for any, any religious people. There's a narrative there that takes you from beginning to end of history and you can see, well, yes, there, there are things in here. Many people just now don't have any stories to hold that together. So therefore you can't alleviate your anxiety because there's nowhere to go to alleviate. So you just have to live with it in that sense. And so we live with a, a, a very anxious society, which obviously has is, is manifested itself in young people quite sharply, um, but it's manifested in people across the globe. So I think there's a, a, there's a kind of um, global mental health challenge that we're living through just now that's, that's, uh, that's caused by a variety of different things, but that you and I are seeing the consequences of. In relation specifically to the pandemic, well, if you're going to, you know, human beings are made in the image of God, and we're relational creatures meant to be with one another, meant to be with, with God. If you're going to lock people up, and I, I say that slightly polemically, but if you're going to take people away from the social circles, social uh, networks for extended periods of time, that's going to damage it. Because you become who you are through your relationships. You know, I read somewhere the other day that um, something like 30% of, of who you are cognitively and neurologically is kind of built into you. But 70% comes as you interact with other people. So it's only, for example, it's only as you talk with people that that part of your brain, which is uh, designed to help to, to facilitate to um, process speech, comes into action. If nobody talks to you, then that'll never come into to action. And so if you isolate people for extended periods of time, your brain begins to close down a bit. You know, if you don't use it, you lose it. It's a, it's a general principle with the, the, the way that the brain works. And so if you're not relating with people regularly over an extended period of time, then it, it becomes not just psychologically, but also neurologically difficult uh, and damaging. So I think that all of these things feed into the reasons why we're now beginning to see difficulties. So how can the church with a capital C or Christian communities respond to this? What should our response be? If you look at the, the research literature, it's very clear that uh, going to church can be good for your health, uh, good for your mental health. So it'll protect you from anxiety. It can protect you from depression. And so there's a, there's a good, strong correlation there. Um, the problem is uh, that people don't go to church very often. So therefore, you can have a lovely use that in principle uh, right. as health bringing, but you have to get people to, to go along there. So I think that one thing the church can do is, is be the church. Now, by that, I mean, if the church is the community of the friends of Jesus, where you are there because you love one another, love your neighbor, love yourself, love God, if you have a community that actually embodies that, that becomes, a, the current claim, a countercultural community uh, and a safe place, if you like, where people can begin to develop the kinds of relationships that will be protective uh, they won't cure you, but it'll be protective from some of the excesses of, of uh, no, I, I, that come with alienation, isolation. So I think if the church can actually become the kind of community that it claims to be, then that's a beginning point. Because it doesn't have to be a therapeutic community. It doesn't have to do anything. It's a bit mm. like a catalyst. A catalyst only changes things by being what it is. If it stops being what it is, it doesn't change anything at all. <laughs> so I think that that's what the, the church needs to do is to be itself. 
Now, many people wouldn't necessarily have a problem seeking medical help for a physical injury, but there often does still seem to be a bit of a stigma around mental health struggles. I mean, why do you think this is? Uh, and I don't know whether you've seen this. Um, and, and I guess sometimes, it, but like particularly in the black community, this seems to be a bit of a struggle or, or in particular Christian communities. Why do you think this is? And I guess more importantly, how do we overcome this stigma around mental health difficulties? Um, I think that one of the problems or one of the challenges is that culturally we tend to be rather dualistically. I mean, you can see that quite straightforwardly. Think about it. When uh, when you meet somebody, the uh, first thing you'll do, more than probably, is ask them what they do. Yeah. And then they'll tell you what you do, and you'll place them, consciously or unconsciously, on a hierarchy, from a brain surgeon here to, I don't know, whatever it is down here. Um, but it's not a coincidence there's a brain surgeon up here, because intellect and reason are the most significant things for our society. You know, to be to be to get on well in our society, you need to be clever, you need to be smart, you need to be quick of thought, and so on and so forth. And so, if, therefore, within our Western society, there's a temptation to think that that's the essence of what a human being is. And if you then take that into a religious co- context and say, "Well, that must be where the soul is," then that's when difficulties become begin to be because problems with your mind that become problems with your soul become problems with that have to be dealt with in a very particular way in a spiritual way in that sense um, whereas in fact mental health challenges many mental health challenges that are, are simply caused by biological dysfunction the yeah. same way as you if you broke a leg you get sexed other mental health problems are, are caused by social dysfunction by people being uh uh, coming from families where they've, they've been broken, where the family's been broken or whatever it is, and that they grew up with a poor self-esteem, poor sense of who they are, and that manifests itself into uh, into um, mental health challenges. So I think the first thing that the, the church needs to do is to recognise that if you look at scripture, that kind of dualism isn't really there. So the Genesis account of creation, God creates Adam, uh picks up some dust, blows his spirit into Adam, and Adam becomes a human being. Adam doesn't become a brain. He becomes a human being. And so the first picture that we get of human beings is as a whole human being. They're held together, inspired by God's spirit. So there's no fragmentation in there. And that the Hebrews never thought about that as a fragmentation of body, mind, and soul in the way that we sometimes do. And so what happens in your body impacts upon Ever, your soul and so on and so forth. So if we take that as a beginning point, as a biblical beginning point, you can begin to say, yes, you may something wrong with your, your mind in that sense, but it's not any different really from something that was wrong in your body. Both need to be helped. God gives us expertise in relation to physical and psychological health. We should use that as part of God's uh, uh, healing purposes and redemptive purposes that for the world. So breaking down that dualism is a beginning point for opening up space for uh, non-stigmatized ways of thinking about how we respond to mental health challenges. Now, I suppose many Christian leaders would be pastorally caring for people who are going through a difficult time or, or experiencing mental health struggles. And presumably a large number of these leaders don't have a medical background like you nor would they probably have a counselling background. Do you think this is an issue when they're dealing with potentially quite vulnerable people? Yes, but only if we're not cl- clear as to what 
our role is within the situation. Um, if you think about it this way, um, there's two different ways, and well, there's many different ways we could think about health, but think about this, uh, this in relation to mental health. So you have a, a medical way of thinking about it that focuses in on particular illnesses or conditions. So it's that's schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, whatever, and tries as best they can to, to deal with symptoms and to minimize symptoms or to eradicate symptoms. So that we, we call that the medical model, if you like. Nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. But when you think about the idea of health as the absence of illness, there's no similar term for health in scripture that for to that, that biomedical model of health. The closest term is the term uh, shalom, which at one level means peace, because we've all used it to some extent, maybe as I created it, but it's a big piece. But it, another, another level means something else. So it means peace, but it means peace with creation, peace with God, peace with yourself in that sense. It's a, it's a big piece in that sense. But the core meaning of the term shalom is justice, righteousness, right relationship. So to be in shalom, to experience shalom, to experience health in that sense, is to be in right relationship with God. So that means that you can be somebody who is, you know, has serious bipolar disorder or somebody who's right at the end of their life dying and you can be really healthy. And you can be a an Olympian that's standing on the, the, the pedestal yes. with his uh, or her uh, medals and you can be really unhealthy. Uh, so the purpose of health, the, the thing that makes us healthy is to be in right relationship with God. Now, um, that's the space that the church needs to inhabit. Not apart from what medicine has, but alongside of it. So when these two models of health work together, then we really are in a position where we can become healthy. The church brings something really important to the table. Friendship, the gospel, ways of thinking about uh, uh, how to become and remain related with God. Medicine brings its gifts that it needs to do to enable people to deal with the physical and psychological problems that they're going through. But if you can get these two things to work together, then you truly have a faithful model of healing. So it's getting that conversation. Pastors can't do it on their own. Psychiatrists can't do it on their own. You need to have that conversation. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Obviously, a huge part of this is what you've just been talking about. But how important is spirituality for those who are experiencing mental health struggles? Well, very important. Uh, because, well, the, for, for two, two reasons. So, spirituality, um, as I've said before, relates to um, these big questions of who am I, where do I come from, where am I going to and why? Think about it. If you get a diagnosis like schizophrenia, as an example, all of these questions have, have changed. Suddenly you've got a new name. Who am I? Where do I come from? Well, I don't come from where I thought I was. Where am I going to? No idea. And why? So it's automatically a spiritual experience in that way. And so what you'll find is that that's the case for depression, for anxiety. That it unsettles you in a very particular way that you kind of lose a sense of who you are. So spirituality is fundamental because I think that most 
mental health challenges in that sense have a spiritual uh, dimension to them. Uh, and spirituality is obviously important in terms of how uh, people respond to, to their experiences and the kinds of interventions, the kinds of help that people people need. So I think it's very important. And uh, for, for many people who are experiencing depression, anxiety, lots of mental health struggles, belief in God can be really difficult because of what they're going through. So how can we help to support, cultivate, grow spiritual lives in the midst of those mental health struggles? Because I don't know about you, but I quite often hear people and particularly in a kind of church setting, they'll talk about, oh, this was my struggle, but now I've recovered and here's how. You know, like when they're in the midst of the mental health struggle, how do you help them in the middle of that? Not afterwards, once things have got a little bit better, but like right in the middle of it. Well, I think that the only thing that you can do is to be present. Um, now, for, for most of us within a, the average congregations, we're not psychiatrists or psychologists, so we, we can't offer counselling or medication, but we can offer friendship. We can offer accompaniment as people go through these diff really difficult quit, uh, issues. And we can offer things like forgiveness and reconciliation where people have done things that they regret or they've, they've said things that they wish they hadn't. We can be, if you like, true disciples. We can truly reflect Jesus in these kinds of situations. And so you can always, you can be a, a, a place of home when people find themselves homeless in that way. And I think that's the essence, really the essence of discipleship, the essence of Christian community is exactly that, creating a space where homefulness is available for all, all people. And I think that that's the biggest gift that the church can give, and, but always in collaboration with those experts that really know and understand what is what is happening at a different level. Um, so I think that these are, these are not small things. Yeah. Um, uh, but we need, to, we need to be confident in what we bring to the table. Yeah. And so how do we help people who are really struggling with their mental health, whatever that looks like, to experience God? Well, sometimes uh, sometimes you, just, you, you don't experience God. Sometimes you feel nothing. <laughs> you know, one of the things that's interesting about we oftentimes talk, think about something like depression as, as feeling sad. But actually, depression, if you speak to people who are depressed, it's, it's actually feeling nothing. Mm. You know, so in that sense, you, 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 you don't feel anything. But one woman that I, I, I spoke to in relation to a piece of research I did a while ago, uh, she describes things like, like this. She was talking about her experience within a charismatic con uh, congregation. Well, as she put it, a happy, clappy congregation. <laughs> and she was sitting out. She felt absolutely miserable in the midst of this, and everybody else was happy, and yeah. she was delighted. They were delighted, and they were jumping about, and, and she just says, "I felt terrible." And she said, "Sometimes the worship leader would uh, uh, sing some lamentation," and she said that she, she liked that because she could identify with that. And, and you know, there's more psalms of lament in, in in the Bible than any other kind of psalms, so there's something very much to be, important to be learned there. But this is what's important. She said, I didn't want other people not to be happy. I just wanted them to recognize that there's, there's a space for me. And I wanted them to hold that space for me until I could pick up again. And I thought that was a really beautiful, uh, if you like, metaphor of the body of Christ. I can't feel that just now, but you can hold it for me until that time when I can pick it up again myself. 
Um, and I think that's what we can do. We can hold these things for our I think that's that's what Paul means. But when we you know we all have different gifts, different experiences within the body of Christ, which means that when you're happy and I'm not happy, just hold that. I'm coming for that. When you're depressed and I'm not depressed, well, hold that. I'm coming for that. And if we get that sense of rather than pointing fingers at one another, saying, "Well, it's probably the reason why you're depressed is because you're not praying hard enough or you're not reading enough," say, "Okay, that's how you feel. I'll hold this just now." You've spoken a little bit about sort of the image of God being about sort of being in right relationship with people and with God. Um, but I guess that there might be a sense that when people talk about the image of God, they talk that, you know, they think of kind of a wholeness of body and mind, whatever that means to them. So what does like us being made in the image of God mean for those of us who have a physical or mental health struggle, do you think? Well, the image of God uh, is uh, it doesn't relate so much to what we have or what we are, it relates to who we are before God. <clears throat> and so, I mean, one of the ways in which historically the image of God has been described is as intellect and reason. Right. So God is has is a God that is filled with intellect and reason, so therefore human beings must be. But of course, as soon as you, you uh, use that as a criterion, anybody with brain damage, the uh, and who no longer has intellect and reason in that sense uh, is no longer in the image or worse than that you know somebody who's a genius is more in the image of God than somebody who's not the genius and so it's complicated uh, uh, but if, if the image of God is relationality then it's not to do with our physical or psychological state it's simply to do with those things that we reflect of God and what we reflect of God is love is joy, is peacefulness, is relatedness, a desire to reach out beyond ourselves, uh, to, 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 um, to love our neighbour, to love ourselves, love God, and that's it. So that, that's, the, that's why I think that way of framing the image God makes perfect sense, because it means that your physical and psychological sense is not your defining character. Jesus is your defining character. Are those things harder to do, do you think, when you're experiencing a mental health difficulty? Holding on to your faith. Well, yeah, and and um, emitting some of those love and and fruitfulness and all of that, the things that you kind of listed off there, are some of those things more difficult to cultivate when you're in a really dark place? Oh, absolutely. But they're more difficult to, to cultivate for you and I on a Monday morning sometimes. Yeah. So, it's, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, not, it's not something that's unique to people with mental health challenges to, to be able, not to be able to feel and experience the gifts of the spirits in the way that we would like to. But yes, certainly, uh, if you're going through the depths of depression, then it's very difficult to 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 uh, identify with or to experience mm. these kinds of fruits uh, of the spirit and all their fullness. But as I say, that's simply a magnification of the way all of us are yeah. uh, at some point or another. So it doesn't make somebody uh, profoundly more sinful or lost. It just means that, 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 that it's, that it's just an exacerbation of the human condition, if you like. John, you've spoken quite a lot and written a bit about um, people hearing voices. Is there a way that we can kind of differentiate between people hearing voices in a way that might suggest that they perhaps need medical help and then hearing the voice of God, whatever that kind of means within your tradition? Um, well, I mean, Christians claim to hear the voice of God all the time, so therefore there's the, the, that in itself is not necessarily something that is pathological. And one of the interesting things about voice hearing is that there's a significant percentage of the 
non-psychiatric population that hear voices, some, depending on what study you look at, some between 3% or sometimes 18%. So hearing voices in and of itself isn't an unusual thing. You know, Jesus heard voices, Churchill heard, heard voices, Gandhi heard voices, lots of people, Martin Luther King. So that, that, that phenomenon of hearing voices is, isn't particularly unusual. It becomes problematic when it causes you distress. And sometimes when it causes distress to, to other other people in that sense. And so in relation to the, the distress that's caused by, by voices, that would be something for the individual and the professional to work out. Uh, and so that you, you that that would be their task to work out what how that, how, how helpful or unhelpful voices may be. But what I would say is that all religious experience experiences is religious experience. So if somebody has an experience of God uh, when they're going through a, a bi an episode of bipolar disorder, for example, a, a kind of elevated mood. The temptation to say, "Oh, well, that must just be the condition," yeah. in which case you write off that experience altogether. Um, but actually, that's probably not the best way to think about it. It may be that this this not a real experience, but it may be that it is. And one of the things I think that we need to consider in relation to hearing voices, but also in relation to religious experience in the midst of complex mental health challenges, is whether they have enduring goodness. So if you, Father, when you sit down with somebody after they've had an acute episode uh, and talk about the experience they've had, whether that has been transformative, whether that's been remains important, whether that has endurance in relation to their their Christian life, then that's the key as to whether it's, it's real, or true, or not. Uh, if it doesn't, then it pro probably was something that just just happened. Something these things happen to all of us sometimes. Um, but if it has, then. Uh, the, the, you don't want to be losing that the, the endurance of that the, the message that that person has received in that particular situation. John, as we come to the end of this episode, I'm sure most people know a young person who is struggling with mental health challenges. It sort of seems to be, uh, we've talked about this already, a kind of pandemic of a mental health crisis among our young people. Are there specific ways that we can be supporting young people who we know are encountering these challenges? Non-judgmental listening is a key thing. Keep the lines of communication open. And even if somebody is articulating things you don't agree with, don't make judgments. Really listen carefully. Make sure that that conversation uh, is uh, heard and seen to be heard, I think is the most important thing. The second thing was... Uh, if you find yourself in difficulties with a particular situation, seek professional help, professional advice. Uh, don't try to go alone, uh, because otherwise all that will happen is you'll get ill as well. So these two things, listen carefully, keep lines of communication opening, and seek help uh, as, as soon as you think it's necessary. And finally, John, what hope do you think Jesus can bring in the midst of some of these really difficult situations where people are experiencing really difficult mental health challenges? Well, Paul is very clear on that point. He says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So he doesn't say nothing can separate us from the love of God apart from depression, anxiety, dementia. He says, nothing can. And so that's the rock on which all of us need to stand in the midst of whatever situation that we're in that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then when that rock sinks in, 
we can build everything else on top of that. John, thank you so much for that. That's all we've got time for today, but we are going to be talking a little bit more about dementia specifically. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. As always, you can find out more about our guest through the links with today's show. Please do let us know what you think of the programme by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch on social media. And don't forget to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.